Father, it is really all about you. All about you as revealed through your life, Jesus. We're here this morning asking to hear from you. Asking that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see a clearer picture of Jesus. Lord, we ask that if we're headed down any wrong paths, that you would open our eyes to that. That you would open our eyes with a precious and special revelation of Jesus this morning. Help us to see you in new and fresh ways like we've never seen you before. Help us to love you more than we've ever loved you before. Lord, this is a miracle that can only happen through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would be here as you've promised to be here and we open our hearts to you and invite you to speak to our hearts to move our hearts and to change us in the precious and holy name of Jesus our Savior we pray amen back in 2006 I got the chance to go on a mission trip and on that mission trip We had a layover in London. We were on our way to Kenya, but we had a layover in London for about 12 hours. Now, I had been sick on the plane, and I was exhausted when we finally got to London, but hey, you only get a few chances in your life to go to Europe, maybe. And so I thought, we've got to go out there and see it. And my dad had arranged for us to go around the different parts of London to see as much as we could in those eight hours that we could be out of the airport. So we went around, we had lunch at this a little Italian place. It was amazing food there. And we got to Buckingham Palace. And we were looking at Buckingham Palace. We stood outside of it for a while. And then we were walking down the street away from Buckingham Palace. And my dad suddenly turns around and he's like, oh, from here, look at that amazing picture that you could take of Buckingham Palace. It's perfect. This is a perfect view. So he did what every child learns when you are here in America. You look left, nobody's coming. So you hop out in the street, right? Isn't that the important direction to look is left? So he looks left and there are absolutely no cars, a perfectly wide open road for him to take another picture. Now my dad loves to take pictures. He takes so many good pictures for us to have memories as a family. I really appreciate that. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get that perfect shot. So he decided that he was going to go out all the way into the middle of the road. And he's out there taking this picture when those of us who are standing on the sidewalk decide we should look to our right. And as we look to our right, there comes a double-decker bus and a whole bunch of traffic that had just left the stoplight. It's headed for my dad who's there just trying to angle his camera just right and get the palace in just so he can get that perfect shot. We start yelling, Dad, Dad, look out. There's traffic coming. It's all too easy to think that you're looking in the right direction, to think that you're on the right side of the road, that you're headed the right direction, your eyes are fixed on the prize, and it could be the wrong prize. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that, right? It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That means I could feel like I'm going down the right path. I feel like everything is good between me and God. I feel okay about life, and I could be dreadfully wrong. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Our hearts can deceive us. They can lead us completely astray. We can think that we're doing God's will and be totally off track, about to be smashed by some double-decker buses. 
Last week we talked about Philip and how Philip was led by God. He was clearly doing the will of God. The Holy Spirit was leading him and led him so clearly that he went to the Ethiopian eunuch out there in the middle of the wilderness. And he preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. He shared with the Ethiopian eunuch. And we learned how God had opened up that door in a way that couldn't have been opened if he wasn't listening to the Spirit telling him to run out into the desert in the middle of nowhere. If you missed that last week, it's on our website. I'm thankful for the recordings that they're able to put together so we can keep following along together. But do you remember what it was that led Philip to be where he was? Before the Holy Spirit, the angel told him to go out into the wilderness. He's in the city in Samaria. And he's there because some persecution is taking place. Now go with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, Paul is appearing before Agrippa, and he is testifying about his own life, about his own testimony. And he's testifying about what took place both in his early years and then a little later on. In Acts chapter 26, he begins his message to King Agrippa, telling him about his life. And we'll pick up the story in verse 4. This is his testimony to this king, this king who was familiar with Judaism, this king who understood some of Paul's religion. But Paul has been accused by the Pharisees. He's been accused of preaching Jesus because his life has been totally changed. But Acts chapter 26 and verse 4, it says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Everybody knows what kind of person I was. It's no secret. Now, this time, Paul's name was actually Saul. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Here he was a Pharisee. He was educated under the great Pharisee Gamaliel himself. He had, from the time he was a child, been taught the Bible. He knew the Bible forwards and backwards. He was an expert in the Torah, the five books of Moses. Paul was following God with all his heart. But little Saul, as he grew up to be a Pharisee, something happened in his life where he just kept listening to the Pharisees. He kept following what the Pharisees were telling him to do until something went terribly wrong for Saul, and he didn't even realize it. Verse continues, verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I thought that in my religion, in my following the laws that were given to us, I thought that in following those, I needed to get rid of the followers of this heretic, Jesus of Nazareth, that I needed to say things against Jesus of Nazareth because hadn't Jesus torn the law down? Hadn't Jesus done so much harm to the true religion of Judaism? He said, I thought that I had to do many things contrary to the name of Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, thus I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. 
Now, this is very interesting. Do you know who were the chief priests? What sect of Judaism they were? They were Sadducees. And what was Paul? He was a Pharisee. one of the strictest of the Pharisees. He tells in Philippians 3 how he was circumcised on the eighth day. He followed the law perfectly. That's what the Pharisees were all about. They had the law strapped on their wrists. They had their little phylacteries on their forehead. They quoted the law wherever they went. They prayed on the corners. They were the holy men of Israel. He was a Pharisee. Now the high priests weren't Pharisees. They were Sadducees. And you see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't get along. Do you know what they didn't get along about? One thing in particular was the resurrection. They were the rich ruling class, and and they didn't believe, they believed that this life was what you needed to live for. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection. But here you have Saul going to the chief priests in order to get this permission to persecute these followers of Jesus. You see how as they're focusing on this common goal, even apparent enemies are able to work together to persecute Christians, to to come against Christians. We often see this take place even in our world today. Continuing in verse 10, And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Notice it says, when they were put to death. So we know the story of, uh, who was the one that he put? Stephen, right? He was there and he was assenting to Stephen's death as Stephen was stoned. And as Stephen looked up into heaven and his face shone with the glory of God and he said, I see heaven open. He was there with those who were plugging their ears and gnashing their teeth and stoning Stephen on the spot. And he was a part of that crowd. He was holding their jackets. He was helping them to accomplish this purpose. Verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. So it wasn't just Stephen. He put multiple people to death. He put a lot of people to death. And then he took them, other people, and he put them in, uh, I punished them in every synagogue and I compelled them to blaspheme. His goal was to persecute people to the point where they would deny Jesus. Thankfully, we're told that many of the martyrs refused to deny Jesus. That was his goal, though. He wanted to make the persecution so terrifying that people would be so afraid that they were going to be put to death that he said they would blaspheme Jesus. And I, being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 9. We were in Acts chapter 8 last week, and we ended with Philip being taken by the Holy Spirit and transported to Azotos and preaching Christ in Azotos. The very next verse after chapter 8, in chapter 9, verse 1, says this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, So that if he found anyone who was of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul thinks that he's doing God's will. Saul thinks that this is God's purpose for him. He's trying to be a faithful Pharisee. He's trying to defend the Ten Commandments. He's trying to defend his religion from Jesus. And from the followers of Jesus, he says, this has got to stop. We've got to do whatever it takes in order to put to death all of these Christians. We've got to do whatever it takes. 
and he thought that he was going the right way. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Last summer, I was hiking with my mom and family in Colorado. As we hiked along the trail one day, I have a picture actually of later on when we were hiking. We're hiking down the trail. My mom was actually in front of us at this point. We came around a corner in the trail and I was kind of looking off to the side or looking down when all of a sudden my mom stopped right in front of us. Nearly bumped into her and was like, Mom, what's wrong? She didn't even say anything. I just looked up and she was pointing. And there, not too far down the trail, probably about 100 yards, there was a bull moose in the trail. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a bull moose in, in live and in person, but they're huge. They're like a horse with horns. Okay, this wasn't the one we saw. This is a little bigger than the one we saw, but they are humongous. And we'd actually seen at the trailhead signs that said, warning, watch out for the moose. But we didn't read what you're supposed to do when you see the moose. So we're there looking down the trail, 100 yards down there, is this bull moose looking straight at us. We're just thinking, okay, warning, moose. What do we do when we see the moose? It stopped us in our tracks. We weren't ready to go any further. It completely halted our progress. We said, we're not going anymore in this direction because clearly this isn't going to work out. Thankfully, a little bit later, he ambled off and wasn't too interested in us, went on to eat grass. But I'm so thankful that we have a God who's in the business of catching our attention. No matter what he has to do, no matter how drastic it is, if we think that we're going in the right direction, if we're earnestly seeking God with all of our hearts, then he is going to arrest your attention and direct you in the right way. If you're honestly saying, I'm not holding anything back from you, God, I'm going all out for you, then he's going to lead you in that path of life. And that's what he does for Saul. Now, when God shows up, it may not always be a fun experience. Look at what happens to Saul. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is a saying in Greek. Basically, when they had cattle, they were trying to push them in a certain direction. They would have a little sharp stick that they would prod their ankles with in order to make sure that they headed down the right path. Jesus says, don't you realize as you were there stoning Stephen and he looked up into heaven and he saw that glorious vision of me and his face was shining, that was to convict your conscience. Don't you realize that you have been so miserable because you're trying to go in the wrong direction? Paul, Saul, it's so difficult for you to kick against the goads. I'm so thankful that God, through his Holy Spirit, goads us, that he prods us, that he, he sends circumstances into our life that help us to, to realize we're headed in the wrong direction. He, he allows little trials to come into our life that, that help us to reevaluate, that help us to think, am I really headed towards Jesus? Am I really headed in the path of life? Is this really the right direction for me? 
And he does this for Saul in such a dramatic way. In fact, let's go back to Acts chapter 26. It describes just a little bit more of what this vision was like. Acts chapter 26 and verse 12. This is the third time actually that we read this story in Acts. It's also in Acts chapter 22. But here he's testifying before Agrippa. And in verse 12 he says, While thus occupied, while persecuting these Christians, which interestingly enough, in Romans 16 and verse 7, it tells us that Paul's own kinsmen were notable Christians who actually became Christians before him. So as he's headed here on the Damascus Road, these Christians are some of his own family that he might be looking for. He's determined to do whatever it takes to get rid of this sect, even if it means hurting his own family. He's determined to do this. And so it says, While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. Now the journey to Damascus was about 150 miles. So 150 miles, that would have taken them about a week. We don't know if they walked or they rode, but likely they were walking 150 miles. And as he is walking along, it says that they got close. We read in in chapter 9, they got close to Damascus. You can imagine as the scenery begins to become more civilized. They look around and there's some farms dotting the hillside. Things are getting a little more green and lush near Damascus. They know that they're almost to Damascus, that their journey is finally coming to a climax, and Saul is getting excited. He has letters. He has authority from the chief priests, and he's going to do some harm to those Christians in Damascus. These thoughts are going through Saul's mind while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, that brightest part of the day, the day when the sun is just beating down on them, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Jesus wanted to do whatever it took to get Saul's attention, and he wants to do whatever it takes to get your attention. He shows up at midday, the sun shining brightly, but Jesus shows up shining brighter than even the midday sun. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the terror that would come into Saul's heart at this moment in time? I'm on my way to kill disciples of Jesus, to wipe out this heretical sect. I'm doing whatever it takes to kill them all. And all of a sudden, this bright light from heaven, a being that I didn't know had been raised from the dead, appears to me and says, Saul... You're headed to kill my followers. I would be terrified to find out what comes next. But I love what Saul's response is in both Acts 22 and Acts 9. He says, what do you want me to do, Lord? He has a response of just, Lord, I'm messed up. I have gone astray. This is the wrong path. But look at what Jesus says to him in Acts chapter 26. Verse 16. 
says, but rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which will yet be revealed to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God shows up and he shows up to one of the worst enemies of the Christian church and he says, I am here to make you my apostle. I'm going to send you to tell the world about me. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life, in my life. When we're headed down that wrong path, that way that leads to death, sometimes when we realize it, we're terrified of God. We think that God is going to punish us, that he's just wanting to inflict some kind of harm in us. And Jesus shows up and he says, I want for you to turn around and begin to tell people what an amazingly loving God I am. But in order for this to take place in our lives, we have to see a revelation of Jesus. After this, Saul's name is changed to Paul. A total transformation took place in his life, so much so that they didn't want to call him by that old name anymore. He was the one who later said, I was a chief of sinners. I thought I was doing what was right, but it was totally wrong. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I thought all of this was gain, but in order to find Christ, I counted it all to be rubbish, absolutely worthless when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. When Saul came into contact with Jesus, everything changed in his life. But it's so easy to feel like we're following Jesus and to really be missing the mark. When you look at the disciples and the life that they lived, the scripture reading today in John chapter 16, it said, I have many things to say to you of which you're not ready. Jesus had to hold back from really revealing so many things to the disciples because they just weren't ready for a fuller picture of him. They were so confused about his purpose. They thought that he had come and he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. They thought that that he was wanting to do away with the Romans. When in reality, he'd come to reveal the Father to them. To reveal an entirely bigger kingdom than they had ever imagined. I love, let's go back to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 tells, first of all, in, in uh, verse 12, that he, there are many things that he wishes that he could say to them. But then he goes on to say this, verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. This is exactly what Jesus did in the disciples' lives. Those disciples who were so confused that at the cross, none of them got it. The only person in that whole scene at the cross that eventually gets it right before he dies is the thief on the cross. Everybody else thinks that this is a terrible disaster that Jesus is laying down his life. They don't get it. 
Even after Jesus is resurrected, they're so confused. They're still scared. They're still hiding until as they spend those 10 days in prayer together and the Holy Spirit is poured out, suddenly it clicks. See, it's the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit who it goes on to say in verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will come and he will glorify me. He'll tell you of things to come. He'll guide you into absolutely all truth. Friends, I believe this is what I need today. I need a bigger revelation of Jesus. I need to see Jesus more fully glorified in my life. I need to understand the things that are to come. If only, sometimes I wonder, if only I could have a Damascus Road experience. Don't you just wish that could happen? That you could be walking along and all of a sudden a light appears from heaven and suddenly you know that you're headed in the wrong path. But maybe we do have such a drastic revelation of Jesus. Go with me to Revelation in chapter 1. Last night, we began with an overview of the book of Revelation. And Revelation 1 and verse 1 sets the tone for the entire book of Revelation, like we talked about last night. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So this is a revelation that was given by God to his son, Jesus. And then it was given to John. This was such an important message that it wasn't just an angel that was sent, but Jesus himself, God in human flesh, came to reveal these truths to us. But it's interesting, this clause in Greek is very confusing. A revelation of Jesus Christ, what exactly it means, because it can mean two things. It can mean, one, a revelation that was given to Jesus Christ for him to reveal to John. But it can also be a revelation of Jesus. A revelation about Jesus. And I believe that ambiguity is there in the Greek because that's really what it's all about. Revelation is both something that was given to Jesus, a message for us, but it's also a book that reveals to us Jesus. Continuing in verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Then verse 3, don't miss verse 3. We talked about it a little bit last night. Blessed is he who reads. The Greek word there, makario, can be blessed or happy. It's such an amazingly good picture. Blessed, happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Last night we noted it says those who read, those who hear, and then it says, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed are those who who take the time to look at this revelation of Jesus. Now you remember that Jesus showed up to Saul as this bright light that that was brighter than the sun. Now look at what is described a little bit later on in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 9 says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
He's the last disciple who's still living. He's been banished to the Isle of Patmos because they're still trying to stop this rampant sect called Christianity that is growing out of control. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that's the Sabbath, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. This was a big loop in Asia Minor, and it was encompassing the Christian church of that time, saying, write this message to the Christian church. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, look at what John saw. Just imagine this in your mind's eye. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as dead. No wonder this is an amazing picture of our glorious God. This is an amazing picture of Jesus that if you suddenly came into contact with God and all of his glory as much as John could handle, no wonder that he fell on his face at that time. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Do you see that Jesus has revealed himself in a shocking, drastic way for you to see? We're told in the book Testimonies to Ministers, there's a special blessing in studying the book of Revelation. Testimonies to Ministers, page 113 says, When we as a people understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And revival means a coming to life. And when we see Jesus clearly revealed, we will come to life. We do not understand fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given us to search and study it. I love how Pastor Antonio shared last night that Jesus is Revelation's Alpha and Omega. Jesus is Revelation's beginning and end. Jesus is Revelation's light of the world. Jesus is Revelation's all-powerful creator. Jesus is Revelation's dying lamb. Jesus is Revelation's righteous judge. Jesus is Revelation's coming king. And Jesus is Revelation's triumphant conqueror. The book of Revelation is one big, beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's shocking. Yes, there are beasts in there. Yes, there are things in there that we don't fully understand. But we need to study it. If we want to know Jesus for ourselves, we've got to pour ourselves into coming to know Jesus as he's revealed in the book of Revelation. 
And I just have to confess that I haven't appreciated the book of Revelation like I want to. I haven't taken as deep of a dive into it as I'd like to. And I've given Revelation seminars before. But I want to see Jesus more fully revealed in my life. It goes on in the book Testimonies to Ministers. It says, when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. Do you want to have an experience with God that comes absolutely alive? An experience where you know Jesus more intimately than you've ever known him before. It says, when we better understand Daniel and Revelation, that's going to take place in our lives. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with a character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to see God. I want to see a revelation of Jesus like I've never seen before. I want to be stopped in my tracks by a beautiful revelation of Jesus that shines brighter than the sun. How about you? I want to see Jesus more clearly than ever before, to fall more in love with him, that that's the reason why I come each week and I sit in the pews in church, that that's the reason why I work for Jesus is because I love Jesus and I've seen his glory And I know that he's my soon-coming king and savior. The book Testimonies of the Ministers, page 388, says, As the mind dwells upon Christ, the character is molded after the divine similitude. The thoughts are pervaded with a sense of his goodness and of his love. We contemplate his character, and thus he is in all of our thoughts. His love encloses us. If we gaze even a moment upon the sun and its meridian glory, When we turn away our eyes, the image of the sun will appear in everything upon which we look. This is what happened to Saul. After this, he couldn't see anything anymore except for Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, I believe it is, he says, I've determined to know nothing except for Jesus and Jesus crucified. Thus it was. Thus it is when we behold Jesus. Everything we look upon reflects his image, the son of righteousness. We cannot see anything else or talk of anything else. His image is imprinted upon the eye of the soul and affects every portion of our daily life, softening and subduing our whole nature. Revelation 1 verse 3 said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep it. I want to be among those that are fixated on Jesus. I want to study the book of Revelation more deeply so that I can experience Jesus more fully, so that I recognize the transformation that he's longing to do in my life because that's going to be a blessed experience. That's going to be a joyful experience, and that's going to transform every area of my life. How about you? Do you want to go on a journey of studying the book of Revelation more deeply than ever before? Do you want to commit to taking time to studying it, to to saying, I've got to understand and see this picture of Jesus more clearly? Go ahead and raise your hand if that's your desire, to take more time studying the book of Revelation. I also want to invite you, if there is any possible way, you may feel like you've been to a Revelation seminar before, but the messages that Antonio is going to be sharing with us are going to be such a rich blessing. 
even if you've gone through a seminar before, even if you've given a prophecy seminar before, you will be blessed by being here. It's a promise of God. In fact, this isn't the only time in Revelation where it promises that those who read it will be blessed. Coming out each night, you will be blessed. How many of you want to come out tonight, 7 o'clock, to the Revelation of Hope seminar? encourage you to be here. It's going to be such a powerful experience, and you're going to get to meet new friends from the community to have that opportunity to make more friends for eternity. There's nothing better than that. I encourage you throughout these coming weeks as we go through this journey of studying the book of Revelation, do whatever it takes to be here every night. We're here every night except for Monday and Thursday nights, and it's going to be such a rich blessing because God has promised it. And if you're able to be here, then come. If you're not, come, go to the website at least and get recordings. Do whatever you can to find out the material and study Revelation because it reveals Jesus. It's not a closed book like we learned last night, but it is apocalypse. It's a revealing, an opening of what is to come and what has happened. It's a revelation of Jesus. Let's pray together. Precious Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for revealing Jesus so drastically to Saul, transforming his life in a way that has forever changed our lives as we've read the books in the New Testament that he's written. Father, thank you so much that you haven't left us without a revelation of Jesus, that you've left us with a clearer revelation of Jesus than even Saul was able to experience as you've given us these pictures from John as he wrote there on the Isle of Patmos what he saw. Lord, we just confess that we haven't appreciated this gift of this picture of Jesus like we want to. We ask that you'd reveal it more clearly to our hearts, that you'd impress us with the urgency of the times we're living in, that we need to understand the things in this book. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and teach us all things and teach us things to come and glorify Jesus in our hearts. Bless my friends this week as they go out to search for deeper, clearer, and more beautiful pictures of Jesus than they've ever experienced before. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.